0: My buddy Mike says to me, he goes, why don't you just lose? I looked at him and I said, what do you mean? What do you, why don't I just lose? Because I figured I had, a, I had two options. Resign under protest or do nothing, not go to the hearing and get fired. You know, and keep in mind, you know, I got little kids at the time. Right, absolutely. You know, I got a huge mortgage to pay and I got, I, there's no way I can quit. So you threw the game. So I decided to throw and he goes, just lose. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I when I charge somebody with a crime or when I do something in a courtroom, man, I'm in there to win.
1: Yeah. You know, not that I'm in no.
0: there because, because I believe that what I'm doing is justice. I charge a guy with a homicide because I believe he's guilty. And I threw this hearing because I believe these guys were not just not guilty, they were factually innocent and were not involved in that homicide.
1: What's up? We're back. Part two with former Manhattan DA district attorney, Dan Bibb, and uh, my co-host, Bill Cannon, up here in Austin, New York, and we had a nice um, we had a nice
2: chat. The first half, I thought Dan can talk, man. He's got the, he's got all these DA war stories. We thought cops were the only ones that told war stories, but he's got he's got um, he's got em, man. As
0: as as we used to say, I can hit the narrative long ball. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's great. That's man. a good one. I like that. So um, you,
0: can, you can steal it if you want.
1: <laughs> I'm going to write it down. Give me a couple seconds here. Uh, da- uh, Bill, you would tell you was you started telling us a, a homicide story, on the break, and I said, you know what? Save it
2: for. Um, it's a funny story. Yeah, it's like one of those stories that you can't believe that it actually happened. A guy goes into the two-five precinct to turn himself in for a murder that he committed 15 years earlier, and he starts telling the woman behind the desk all the all the details of the murder, and she says you're in the wrong precinct. She goes, that's, that happened in the two, three. She goes, the two, three's is on 102nd street between third and Lexington. So the guy walks to the two, three, tells them they go, yeah, yeah, they send them upstairs to the squad. Billy Dunn is there. And sure enough, he did a murder 15 years ago. He knew all the facts. He's now doing 25 to life. Oh my God, that's, it's hard to believe. Hard that. To so, believe
0: no, this. no, I, I believe I every word of that.
1: <laughs> Civil service.
0: <laughs> Everybody rises to their own level of incompetence. That's right.
1: So you're uh, you're in the DA squad. We talked about this earlier. Uh, you're living on the Upper West Side, playing in the the DA basketball league, having a couple of beers every day after work, and in uh, homicide cases, man, trying homicide cases.
2: When did this, you make this Chief? This is what movies are made about. Yeah, but when did you make Chief? How long did it take you to make Chief? I never made well, Chief. No, I mean, excuse me, Senior Trial Counsel. How long did it? Uh, well, it took me a while.
0: How many people stay? I had, I had a, uh, there were a couple of checkered episodes in my past <laughs> that uh, the office wasn't too fond of. Well, this is where the but, show is built
1: around. Your show is built around this right now. Those, those little stories. I keep right. holding you back slightly, but the, you're the, the most competent guy there at some point.
0: Well, I took a collar, so... You did? Yeah, no for, way. For common.
1: Get the fuck out! Wow.
0: Got, got a summons. What, at a protest or something? No, I was on the PATH train, actually. Wow. Going home after... Some guy had the window open?
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Going home after a uh, party for somebody who was leaving, and uh, a cop... The Port Authority cop took offense to uh, some words I had with the conductor. Decided I was being disorderly, dragged me off the train, cuffed me up, dragged me inside. And as, as he's walking upstairs, he's, we're on the escalator. And uh, I said, you know, he's got me cuffed up pretty tight. And he's jerking the handcuffs around. I said, you know, that kind of hurts, man. You know, can you not do that? I said, and besides, I'm in law enforcement. And the guy goes, oh, shit. And I said, my shields in my back shield and ID are in my back pocket. And I had a pair of jeans on. And he pulls it out, and he looks at me, and he goes, oh, shit. So we, we go into the police room by the pass station, and I was actually going out to my parents' house to pick up my car to go down to Jersey Shore the next morning. And, you know, I'm there for, and they, they had to call a captain from Jersey City where their command is. And the captain comes in and says, are you calm now? I looked at him and said, captain, I've never been anything but calm. I said, you know, the police officer evidently objected to words that I had with the conductor. And I was even calm during those words with the conductor. And he goes, well, we're going to write you a summons. I said, for what? What did he do? And so the, the, the cop, I remember his name,
2: <laughs>
0: Frank Um the cop writes me a summons for discon, And of course, you know, on the back, you're supposed to put some factual allegations right. about what you actually did that make, made you disorderly. He conveniently left that blank because I hadn't d- really done anything disorderly. Uh, of course, I had to go. That was Friday night, and I end up getting out to my parents' house about... Instead of getting out to my parents' house about midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning, I got there around 7, and my, my mother is panicked because I told her I'm coming to pick up my car and going down the shore on Saturday morning. My mother's panicked. I haven't called her. I just looked at her, and I said... I'm getting in my car. I'm going down to shore. I didn't even tell them that I had just taken a collar. Uh, But Monday morning, you know, I'm in the office at 8 o'clock waiting for my boss. And, uh, you know, it goes all the way up the chain of command. Then I got to go sit down with the second command in the DA's office. I got to explain to him everything that happened. I had to get a lawyer. Holy shit. Um, but when we went to court, I was actually in e-cab on the second floor and the summons part was in 100 center street. You know, now it's over on 346 Broadway. The they, summons Broadway. Did
2: they make you wear one of those zebra outfits when you went to court? <laughs> orange, orange, <laughs> orange, is orange, orange is the new black. Orange
0: is the new black.
2: Hey, that's so, Dan Bibb in that zebra outfit. <laughs> so I had
0: to, I had to go to court with my lawyer, uh, who I'm still friends with. And you know the, the attorney moves for an ACD, and the judge just looks on. looks at the back of the ticket, and goes, "This ticket is insufficient. It's dismissed. Goodbye." Wow. So I, I walked out of the Summons Park courtroom, back into E-Cab, and started writing cases up again. So that was a little bit
2: of a black mark, but it really was nothing, though. But I guess they well, count. The the everything, counted I, counted everything. Like you,
1: I, you paint the picture for me, and I always see the scenes. That's a cool scene for so, your sh- for your show.
0: So I, I the, with every big murder case I try, you know, I expect that there's going to be a phone call from Bob Morgenthau saying, Dan, you know, come up to the office and, you know, we want to, and it, it was a title. It really wasn't, there was no money with it. It wasn't a promotion, but it was, you know, in, a, in an office of 500 attorneys, there are maybe 20, 25 senior trial counsel. How many do you have on the I'm sorry. Don't you have uh, you have um subordinates under you? I, no, I was never anybody's boss. Thank God. But you get a uh, an assistant, though, or you get. Well, a- you always have a paralegal yeah. that works for you, and you know, there's usually when when we started the cold case unit in '96, um, it was me, Steve Sirocco, and a paralegal, and we had the occasional wor- use of of an investigator, but mostly it was just the detectives that we work with. But God forbid they never made me a boss of anything, because they knew I could barely be boss of myself. So, you know, it was probably it was either after the bank robbery trial, or the first cold case. I know I think it was after the bank robbery trial. I got the phone call that you know the boss is going to you know you go up and the trial. You canceled. go into the you go into the, the inner sanctum. Uh, Morgenthau's office, and uh, he says, "You know, Dan, I'm going to make you senior trial counsel." And you say, "Thanks, boss. Appreciate it." As I walked out the door, I said, "About time." <laughs> I didn't say it, but you I know something—you
2: can't be anywhere else in the world with bigger cases or more exciting cases than in Manhattan, the Big Apple. You're a fucking big cheese in the, you know, most prestigious DA's office probably in in the country.
0: You're right, and I'll tell you a funny story. I was. I actually was uh, contacted by the Essex County Prosecutor's Office to come in to interview for their first assistant, assistant prosecutor's position. And when I got there, um, I, I walked into the office. It was five thirty-six o'clock in the evening, and I'm expecting to meet, uh, I can't remember his name, but the, the prosecutor for the county. And I walk in, and I sit down with a guy that I don't know, I said, you know, I thought it was Mr. So-and-so, the prosecutor, to interview for the um, first assistant's job. He goes, well, Dan, the first, first assistant's job has been filled, but we wanted you to come over to interview, to, to interview you to, to try murder cases here in Essex County. I looked at him and I said, I try murder cases in the biggest city in the world. Why would I ever want to come here to try <laughs> murder cases? I already do it in uh-huh. a place much more prestigious. I came here to interview for a boss position. And I turn around, walked out the walked
1: door. Out. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, do you would you practice your jury uh, selection or summation or your closing statements at home the way you know like the way I used to when I was a comedian, just in a room by myself? Do you, are you talking to yourself? Do you do it for people? I never did it.
0: No? <laughs> ever. <So> you <laughs> you wrote it Obviously, you
1: wrote it down, right? Everything, yes. You wrote it down. So Opening it, statements. You never stood up
0: there with the... Summations.
1: With the yellow pad and just start reading it? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury? It was never honor. read.
0: Ever, nothing was ever read. It was all notes. It was all bullet points. Um, and it, and, it, and it, the longest trials... Uh, let's see. The, the doctor trial, my summation was three hours. Wow, that's a long the one. The bank robbery trial, my summation was three hours. And um, you know, when you have a lot of evidence to marshal, you've really got to spend some time. Um, but no, I, never, I, never, I never practiced them, mm-hmm. although my wife would want me to. She, was, she would say something, you know, uh, I don't want you to say anything stupid. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I would ask my wife, what, what, if I said something stupid, what would make you think you knew that I was saying something <laughs> stupid? <laughs> But isn't and it ama- she would she would always come back because I'm smarter than you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. But Dan, isn't it amazing
2: how just a bullet point can lead you on ten or fifteen minutes of talking, right?
1: Yeah. But <clears throat> when you're doing um, these closing arguments, and um, you know you're you really you're trying to get at the heart of the jury, you know, really let them know how evil this person is, or whatever, and sometimes. You know, inflection, the way you say, th- you're saying your thing, you know, because you see it on TV and in the movies all the time where you get these, uh, these uh, it's usually defense attorneys that are very animated. So, so I would imagine that um, prosecutors can be
0: that way, too. Absolutely. They are. I tried. I tried some heavy cases against some pretty animated defense attorneys.
1: Um, who was who would like the best ones at it? Like really a full of shit. You know, they were full of shit, but they, they were getting it over on the jury.
0: The guy, the guy I thought who was one of the best trial attorneys I tried, case, I tried cases against was a guy by the name of Tom Klein. He's the guy I tried the, my first misdemeanor case with. I tried a couple of murder cases. He worked with Legal Aid for years. I think he still probably is with Legal Aid. I tried a couple of murder cases with him. I won all. Won, I think I tried two of them with him. They don't make any money, Legal Aid, right? No, no, they to don't. stay in the legal aid for all those years. You, to be I mean, that good, too. Yeah, you can make money. That's amazing. There were some other guys that I started with a guy by the name of Jeremy Schneider. Um, I tried a murder case to a tie with him. The guy was convicted of man two, which might very well have been the correct verdict. Um, he was, he was very good. Another guy by the name of David Stern, these are all legal aid guys. Uh, Schneider and Stern have long since gone from legal aid, but David Stern. Now, if I got jammed up, uh, David Stern would be on my short list of guys that I would call. I mean, he was that good. Um, I tried a murder case against him, conviction. Do these guys work
1: legally? Also, have their own practice, or no. exclusive they legal are aid? exclusively? They are
0: exclusively legal aid. They're full-time employees.
2: Wow. How so about the Devin- high, How about the hired guns, the big-priced attorneys? Who was the best of those? Who would you say was?
0: I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> You know, most of the keep in mind that most of the pr- homicides that I that I tried were they're 18B lawyers. You know, they're on a panel and right. they, they just get picked. And some are better than others. Some there are a few that are very good and a few that are not so good. Um, I tried uh, three murder cases against Nicky Barnes' lawyer, David Breitbart. Um, besides being one of the most obnoxious human beings in the world, um, and actually called me a Nazi in court one time. <laughs> Um Breitbart's a very good lawyer. Um, he's very animated. He knows what he's doing. Um, I tried three What murder- was the
1: Breitbart's name?
0: David Breitbart. You know,
1: I used to be his doorman before I became a cop. No way. So he was good, huh? Yeah, he
0: was good. Yeah. Well he he, he got Nikki Barnes off uh three murder trials. And uh when, he's Nicky, a good lost, when, Nick, when Nicky lost when Nicky when Nikki lost uh, Nikki fired David and went with somebody else, and then Nikki went straight to the feds and, and confessed his soul that he had actually killed all the people that he was acquitted of those homicides. Uh, but I tried three murder cases. I was 3-0-1. Um, I had one hung jury and then tried that guy again to a conviction. And I tried the 13th pre my first cold case uh, against him to a conviction and then tried another drug ripoff Um Guy the guy who was his client was an acolyte of Nikki Barnes. He was a kid acolyte of Nikki Barnes when Nicky was at the top of his game. And all those guys are still in jail. No, I'm sorry. One of the guys one of the guys out, but the two other guys are still in jail. And I, yes, I do check every once in a while to see <laughs> if people that I put in jail for life still, are still yeah. there. Although frighteningly so Besides releasing cop killers, the New York State Parole Board is releasing other killers as well. That's a big thing right now, releasing the cop killers. The, the bank robbery guys, they were convicted of murder and got 22 to life. They're both out. Um, the, my first cold case, um, they stabbed a guy, cut his penis off, and fried it in a frying pan, washed it <laughs> down the toilet.
1: Wait, 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 wait. We can't just skim over that. What happened you? <laughs> skim over that.
0: <laughs> they... <laughs> Two guys picked up a, uh, a a gay guy in a gym, took him back to his apartment. They robbed him, stabbed him, strangled him, cut his penis off, fried it up in a frying pan, flushed it down the toilet. And they why took, not just flush it down the Why did you got to fry it up for? I don't know, but the crime scene photographs there's a frying pan oh on the stove God. with liquid in it. You can't make shit like that up. So that guy, that guy <laughs> that is horrible, man. That guy's out. Those he two got,
1: guys that, that cut off that guy's penis around, one of them anyway?
0: One of them is dead. One of them cooperated with me. One of them was suffering from full blown AIDS at the time, cooperated with me, um, and testified in a seven hour conditional exam. And then, when just before, about six months before the case went to trial, he passed away. So, this was, it was big news because it was you know, this gay guy who was. You should know viciously that this guy's killed. out in
1: the street. You don't want to bump into that guy and by accident.
0: Viciously killed, and the and the main witness is reaching out from the grave to touch this guy. That was that. Was, those were the stories that ran in the Times, Newsday, Post. Um, he was going to get. He was convicted, got 25, and did 26. He was recently got out. The DA's office sometimes lets me know. I get, right. I get phone calls from assistant DAs, and they'll tell me, "Hey." You know, Billy Seals is out. That was the guy from the 13th Precinct penis case. You know, I got to get a call. Billy Seals. Just want to let you know, Dan, Billy Seals got out. You know, I want to let you know the bank robbery guys got out. Right. By the by, the, the bank robbery guys, thorough professionals. You know, in the courtroom, gentlemen. Absolute gentlemen. <laughs> but then there are guys, you know, who are insane. Yeah. Right? I, I had a guy who killed five people. I tried. This is probably 98. And, um... Ninety-eight the trial was. And this is one of the guys who chopped up his brother with a circular saw after he shot him in the back of the head. He would come out and greet me every morning. Mr. Bibb, good morning. He'd come out of the pants in the <laughs> back. Good morning, Mr. Bibb. How are you this morning? I'm good, Carmelo. How are you? Fine, fine, fine. Who's on deck for today? Who's coming? Who's? Dennis is coming today. Oh, my lawyer's going to eat Dennis alive. You know that. You know, my lawyer's going to kill Dennis. Mm -hmm. All right, Carmelo. All right. All right. Every morning he'd come out, come out of the pens. Good Mm -hmm. morning, Mr. Ben. Cheery.
2: You know, Dan, being on both sides of the fence. He's doing 75 to
0: life. All right. Good. You
2: know, you obviously have these amazing cases from when you were a prosecutor, and now you're a defense attorney. And we're seeing a lot of, um, in criminal justice reform, some of the reform that we obviously don't like, cop killers being Released, uh, I I'm against uh, convicted felons voting. I think that's ridiculous. You know, I think you. Well, now they want
0: now they want felons on juries.
2: Well, on juries too. I, could you imagine? What is that called, the voir dire When you voir dire. Pick, yeah, mm-hmm. could you imagine any prosecutor saying, Yeah, I'd like that felon. He's, he's going to be a good. That'll never happen. Of course not. But it, where is this outrageous thinking coming from?
0: It's it's outrageous. The progressive left. Yeah, I mean it and just. At, you know, as a defense attorney, I'm. There are certain aspects of criminal justice reform that I am absolutely 100 percent in favor of: paroling um, cop killers, letting them letting them vote, and letting them serve on, on juries, juries. That's not one of them, right? Um, you know, for 24 years, you know, I we I played the game of hide the bottle. You know, I'm hide hide the bottle. You know, where's I used the to woods. play hide the salami. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, 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 comments. Like no, when I was on the co- no when I was a cop
1: for those twenty years, the, you know, Discretion, the, bl- Discretion the blue was a magnet
0: part of valor in that one.
1: The blue magnet. You go out there, you go out to the bars afterwards, <laughs> and then try to find a girl to play Harley Salami <laughs> no I'm sorry, I threw you off. Sorry, <laughs> uh,
0: right. but I'm, I was. And interestingly enough, um, Cy Vance, uh, the present DA, who I started with in 1982. Um, has before the the primary and before the election, I actually met with him for breakfast twice and I had been in, you know I'd been in in the you know private sector for a few years. He wanted to know first of all what happened with the palladium case and then he also wanted to know what my thinking on on what reforms could be. Placed in place to, to help the justice system improve. And I, you know, I told him all about the Palladium case and I told him, I said, the most important thing that you can do is don't hide the salami anymore. And he looked at me, I didn't put it like that. And I said, well, you can do discovery reform. I told him, I said, I'm practicing in New Jersey. I'm practicing criminal defense in New Jersey, which I've been doing since I left the office in 06. And when you walk into a courtroom for arraignment on a, on a, on a complaint, really. The, there's a table or, or file cabinets with file drawers. And you, as a defense, you go over, you, and the, the file drawers will have letters on it, A A through C, D through F, you know, and, and you go over and you open the drawer, and there will be an envelope or a box or something there. And there will be all the police reports, all the discovery. And if there's electronic evidence... All you got to do is you walk over to the prosecutor's offices or in, if they're in the same building, you know, in in Essex and a lot of other places, they're in the same building, but Bergen, they're in different. So you walk to the prosecutor's office and they hand you whatever electronic evidence they have on disc or a thumb drive. And you write them a check, usually for a couple of bucks for the discs or a couple of bucks for the thumb drive. And you have just about everything that you need to defend a case the first day you walk into a courtroom. And I told Vance, I said that you should be doing that. And I remember what he told me. He said, you know, Dan, at some point I'll be president of the DA's office, DA's association. I'll push for some reforms like that. And I said, looked at him. I said, you know what, Cy? You don't need to push for, you don't need to be president of the DA's office to to have discovery reform in New York. I said, every every DA is their own elected official and every DA can set policy. I said, you, when you take office, and this is especially the conversation I had with him after the primary where he is going to be the DA. Right. Um, I, I, I told him, I said, the day you put your hand up and put your hand on the Bible and swear to uphold the law and defend the Constitution of the United States and the states of New York, you can turn around and you can have ready a policy that deals with all of the eventualities about discovery. And you can you can adequately protect witnesses. You can adequately do things that will protect the public. But you can also do something that will level the playing field for the defense. Because after having been in the office for 24 and now in private practice for a few, I really saw in New York how unlevel the playing field was. And he said that that was a great idea and that he would really think about, you know, instituting a new discovery policy. Guess what? Never happened. The Manhattan DA's office today is more conservative on discovery than ever before. You get nothing from them until they are legally obligated to give it to you. Now, it's unlike the Brooklyn DA's office, where in many cases, you get things straight out of the box. It will take a while. It will take a month or two, but you don't have to go through motions. You don't have to go through all this nonsense to try and force them to give you something that they don't have to give you yet.
2: You know, Dan, just for uh, one second, for our audience, um, discovery is evidence that all the evidence that the prosecution has, they have to turn it over to the defense at some point. Uh, so that's what discovery is. Usually it happens.
0: before trial, right? In, in New York, it's called Rosario material. They're really what you're looking for are witness statements. And in New York, actually the law in the state of New York is that the, the prosecutor is not obligated to turn witness statements over until after the jury is sworn. Um, I, in my, at least in my last 10 years in the office, I took a liberal view of discovery and I started giving it out probably a couple of months in advance of trial. Um, and sometimes you'd get a plea as a result of it. And in New Jersey, we have everything, all all the witnesses statements in front of you. I can have intelligent conversations with my clients well in advance of trial, you know, six, eight, nine months before trial. I know what their case is.
1: So basically we're talking about conviction rates. I, I would imagine what you're trying to say is that Manhattan is worried about conviction rates so they don't give the discovery or they hold it as long as possible in the hopes that...
0: You're going to take a plea.
1: Yeah, but you're, what you're saying is that you'd probably take a plea
0: earlier if you could see that all these witness statements... You're right. And you'd probably have less trials than you do now. That's because you're... because. Any good defense attorney is going to tell you the more information you have, the better you can advise your client. You know, most of the time you're advising your client with blindfolds on. You're, you're advising your client in the dark because you don't know what the witness statements are, you know, and in, in police drug cases, I mean, why in the world would you withhold the statements of police officers in a drug case? you're not you're doing nothing to advance the furtherance of to advance the cause of justice what do you think somebody's going to threaten the cops because right. you turned you turned over discovery on a on a drug case and you know i i recently i don't do a lot of drug work but if they can pay i will i defended a guy in manhattan and this is you know they told me what the evidence was but they weren't giving me anything so right before trial I'm begging the assistant. My client's pissed off because he thinks he's getting railroaded. So right before trial, I get fired because he thinks I'm not doing my job. And he hires somebody else. And she, same thing happens to her, but she ends up getting all the evidence right before trial. And the offer that was on the table when, when, I, was, when I was the attorney is now taken off the table no, I, I would end offer to a lesser count and a couple and two years in prison. The offer now is the top count, and it's four years in prison. And of course, she gets the police reports, and she gets everything, and she calls me up and she goes, "Holy shit, Dan, this guy's screwed." And now what's he going to do? Right? He's fucked. He's, <laughs> he's screwed. because mm-hmm. he had two years on the table, which, had he known what the evidence was, he would have taken. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, I, sometimes I have people look at me. I have, you know, non people, non law enforcement professional people look at me and says, "Well, your guy knows if he did it or not." And I said, "No, that's not the point. Right. Yeah. The point is the fairness of the criminal justice system. It's not whether he did it or not. It is give us, give give me the things that I can show my client that he did it." I had a one point eight million dollar fraud in the state of New Jersey. Before the guy was even arrested, I got a call from the assistant attorney general. Come down to Trenton. We'll give you everything we got. I got a huge box and a stack of DVDs with all kinds of, with the evidence on it. And there was an offer. There was going to be an offer made. And it was going to be a substantial offer and a $1. $1. $1.8 million fraud, as, it, as you would think. But my guy is in denial. And he's telling me, no, I'm, no, I'm going to trial. This is, you know, screw them. That guy stole $1.8 from his clients. And he did it in a somewhat sophisticated way, but rudimentary enough that, you know, even me, a non-white collar guy, when I went through it, I go, ho, 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 you're screwed. And when I sat down with him and we went through it all, sat in front of a computer for like eight hours, total of about eight, 10 hours with him, he came, he came to Jesus. He had a moment and said, I'm screwed, Dan. What do I do? So, well, guess what? Next week, they're going to tell me what the offer is. I'll try and negotiate it down a little bit, but you're going to take it because otherwise you're going to be doing 10, 12 years. And it ends up it was a five year offer and he ended up we ended up getting him down to four and he did two and a half. Was this a federal case? No, it was a state attorney general case. Oh okay. Well
2: but how about Dan, with the um, where with some discovery witnesses uh, are are being outed and possibly endangered. What can't the you
0: know, in the new law there's a provision that the DA's office can seek in appropriate cases protective order. And judges, I believe, will grant them um i i did that when i was in the manhattan da's office i had protective orders two trials one guy killed six people one guy killed five in two trials i had protective orders on all the witness statement, witness statements until they, the night before they testified right in appropriate cases there is a mechanism for people to protect witnesses but in in new jersey Recently, had a conversation with a deputy chief of the trial division in Manhattan, and I told him about practicing in New Jersey. And goes, "Oh, you know, I mean, Jesus, Dan, aren't witnesses being intimidated and killed and everything?" And I said, "A matter of fact, no." I said because in appropriate cases, judges do liberally grant protective orders. Right. So there's a mechanism in place. The new law takes effect January first. I mean, I don't, I don't I haven't defended a murder case, so I don't know what stance they're going to take, but. Um, listen, in 1990, after we extradited a guy back from Ohio for a homicide, he had a witness killed from jail. But he had a witness killed because he knew who the witness was. Right. And not because I, he had any witness statements or not because he knew who they were. He was, they were in a drug gang together and the defendant killed his drug boss right, right in front of three other guys who he worked with.
2: I mean, look, even you look at um, the whole, the police department has that DD5 system, the complaint follow-up system where there has to be a level of security to that or else you know you could go look up your brother's case in Brooklyn and know what they're going to do or know what
0: evidence they have against the relatives i want to, I want to see if the uh, the new the the, the computerized system that that they have now has been hacked
2: well you know something everyone i never thought it would the security was where everyone could look at it. You know what I mean? Now, of course, if you look at it, your name is that you signed into the yeah. computer. But there's probably a lot of people
0: that shouldn't be reading those fives, I, you know? I don't disagree with you. But a defense attorney isn't one of them. Right. You know, defense attorneys have ethics. Save, save a former federal prosecutor in New Jersey who's doing life for passing information on to his drug clients and getting people killed. You know, by and large, you're going to give a defense attorney discovery with names and addresses of witnesses, which they do in New Jersey, you know, defense attorneys, the first thing he's going to not going to do is go to his client. You know, if his clients accused of a violent crime. He's not going to go to his client and say, Oh, Hey, here's the witness statements, (laughs) knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. And here's their, here's their addresses and phone numbers. Knock yourself out. Now, if I was defend, if I'm defending a violent crime, which I don't um, do very often, um, The last thing I'm going to do, I'm going to give my client all of the witnesses' statements, but I'm going to take out their addresses and phone numbers because the last thing I want is my client doing something stupid. They've already done something stupid. They're indicted for a crime. last thing I want is my, my client doing something more stupid and getting, you know, threatening a witness and getting bail revoked and going right to jail. So, yeah, when I get discovery from prosecutors' offices, I give everything to my client. But I will take witnesses, witness names, addresses, and phone numbers out because there's no need for them to know So, that. what what are most of your cases now? It, they range anywhere from done quite a few sex crimes, um, a lot of you know, a lot of misdemeanor cases. I actually interviewed the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, and one of the guy in. Brooklyn, one of the guys I interviewed with looked at me and says, well, Dan, what if you went, you know, you've tried some of the heaviest cases in Manhattan. What if you went to try and drug cases here in Brooklyn? I looked at him and I laughed and I said, my last case, my last trial was a misdemeanor assault case in Hillsdale, New Jersey. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been, I've already been, I've already been brought low. So, so don't, so don't even tell You're me. That. Going I said, try, lower. Try, trying to, trying to, you know, 20 kilo drug case would be a step up from a misdemeanor assault case in, in New Jersey.
1: I would imagine though having a, um, a lawyer that was once a prosecutor's benefit. I think it is. Um, and that's why I'm going to ask you, do you have a card? <laughs> <laughs> no, you
0: know what? I, didn't, Not that I hope I never have to use it. I printer. usually, I usually always have cards in my pocket or cards in my bag. They're sitting on a table in my office at home. Now, Dan, this might be a stupid question, but did you have to take the bar in New Jersey too? Yeah, it's um, the bar. Bar exam is a two-day test. Um, New Jersey adds a day. So, in when I took the bar exam, there's an, there are essay essay tests for each. And there's what's called a multi-state exam, which is a multiple-choice exam. And in New York, because you got a lot of people taking both of the tests, the New York essay is one day, the multi-state test is the next day, and then the Jersey essay is the next day. So instead of two days, I had three days of torture. Did
2: you actually have to go back and study again, or what?
0: Yes. Um, Actually, when I was studying for the bar exam, it was about... Six weeks before from seven weeks before when I got out of school to the test. And I studied six days a week, took Sundays, took Saturday night and Sundays off. And just to I, go see how that pub was Any any pub <laughs> any would was do. Pub, was any it any was pub, any pub would do. As a matter of fact, at the time I was living in West Orange, New Jersey, and it was a little little bar, really hole in a wall bar called Brennan's, where I would spend most of my Saturday nights and Sunday <laughs> afternoons. But uh, yeah, and for about a month there, my, my, fa- my father worked in Manhattan. I was taking a bar review course at Town Hall, and my father worked on uh, 53rd and 6th. And my, for a month, my parents were in Europe. So I would stay at my girlfriend's house on the Upper West Side, commute down to um, my father's office, spend eight to nine hours studying. And then I'd go from to the bar view course from six to, six, at night, 6 to 10 at night, and then repeat the next day. And it was usually, there were usually a couple of classes on Saturdays where it'd be three or four hours on Saturdays. So, yeah, I didn't have much of a social life for seven no, but weeks I mean, of studying for When you, for the bar when you
2: became I, a defense attorney, uh, no, no. You didn't have to take the Jersey Bargazet. You had already taken it. I had already taken it. it? Oh, okay. I, I, I wasn't it, aware of I that. I
0: took it back in 82. Oh, so that was smart. Yeah. They're, I, they I, I, mean, that I knew I was. I knew I was going to be practicing in, in New York, but, you know, who knows what the future was going
2: to right, be. Right, right, exactly. How, yeah. how is law different uh, to practice in New Jersey as opposed to New York? What are the differences?
0: Well, I mean, one of the big differences I just thought to you about is the discovery. Um, none of the prosecutor's offices are as big as any of the DA's office in the city. Um, the... You know, when I, was, when I was a prosecutor, there were very few defense attorneys that I did not get along with. And I find that, that, that as a defense attorney, there are very few prosecutors I don't get along with. Um, mo- a lot of times because they know where I've come from. Right. But also, too, I mean,
1: you're lawyers. At the end of the day, you're lawyers and you have, um, you have lives. And this is, this is what you do for work. It's almost like a game in a way, you know. I mean, it's a game with people's lives, but still, you shouldn't. This is the difference between the time that we're living in right now. You can't have a discussion with anybody without them being your enemy. They you can't, there's no logical, there's no. If like, you
2: disagree with them, you mean? Well, yeah. Like
1: you said, you go have a beer. At the end of the day, you're both lawyers.
0: I mean, I agree with you. And there are a number of, a couple of prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office who I think shouldn't be because of their attitude toward defense attorneys. They think we're trying to get something over on them. Um, they think we are the enemy. You know, people say, well, how can you represent people who do those things? And I said, well, I don't, I, don't rep- I don't represent their crimes. I said, I'm not vouching for them as people. I said, my job as a defense attorney is to make sure that in any given case, that the DA's office has the, has the evidence to show that my client committed a crime, and if they do, my job is to mitigate that. My job is to, and I and I and I tell this to a lot of my friends these days. Most of the time, my job is a lobbyist. That my yeah, job is, I definitely. meet with I meet with prosecutors and either try and convince them that they're wrong in their interpretation of the evidence. Politicking. In a way, I, uh, politicking in a way, mostly lobbying because I mean. You know, I've had one of one of the first cases that I had when I went into solo practice was a kid accused of a couple of rapes up in Orange County. And the kid was absolutely one hundred percent wrongly accused by two women of having raped them. And I would have tried the case. I was ready to try the case. Um I think that ultimately, you know, we interviewed all of the witnesses. I I heard Johnny McAndrews, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide yep. Squad as my investigator. Johnny Mack interviewed just about all of the witnesses um, that this woman talked to, be- both before and after she had sex with these t- this guy. And both of them not only bragged about, bragged about they were going to have sex with him, but bragged about it afterwards. And this is after the guy's already been charged. He's already been indicted, and the DA's office hadn't even spoken to any of her friends about any motives. of this.
1: Those are motives. Their
0: motive. Far be it for me to ascribe a motive to somebody. I don't. I don't know. For nothing. I don't. know. I don't know what their motive was. Did One, he have money? This guy? No, no. I mean, the, the, his parents had enough money to pay me.
2: Well, but. Dan, how about even the assumption these days with the politics behind um, some of these rape cases? With hashtag Me Too, that women are always telling the truth. And if you've ever investigated a sex crime, you know that uh, we've spoken to sex crime detectives. If I've gone out with numerous on sex cases that many times the, the complainant is lying. A high percentage in, in sex crimes. And you, they would have uh, social service agencies saying, oh, no, it's the lowest of any crime. And that happens to be false.
0: The Me Too movement is the worst thing that happened to anybody who's going to be accused of a sex crimes. Um, I've tried two sex crimes, um, three, actually, since the Me Too movement really came to the forefront. Um, Two guys were convicted. One guy was acquitted. Um, And it is problematic that you've got to address all of this in jury selection. Instead of actually trying to get at people's true attitudes towards criminal justice and whether they can give your client a kind of fair trial, you've got to address Me Too. Right. And you've got to address the assumption that the Me Too movement wants to set in place that, that everybody's telling the truth all the time.
1: During jury selection, can you look at some of the women there and almost just based solely on the way they look, can you almost determine, like, I don't want her. She's She looks like a feminist. She looks like she's part of Me Too. She's I don't want... I need as least uh, few of those on my jury as possible. Well, the
0: worry, the worry, is not, you know, because in New York, defense attorney you know, attorneys do get to speak to jurors. Mm-hmm. You know, in New Jersey and federally, the judge does everything. So you're allowed to probe. So I mean, I've never made a judgment of anybody, you know, whether they're. Can you look at the social media pages? No. You're, you basically, you're picking a jury. You're going by what they're telling you. Mm-hmm. You're not... You know, un- unless it's a questionnaire case... Would you be okay show, with
1: that? If that became part of this, you know... Jury looking selection? at social
0: media pages? I think people... I think if you were allowed to, more people would tell the truth. You know, if what deer means to speak the truth. Um,
1: the jury I'm talking about, p- selecting the jury. You think they lie when they go... Um, I think... Give their statements for
0: the jury? It, I think some do. Um, I... I couldn't even tell you how prevalent it is um, but I have no doubt that you know, in one or more of the the cases that I was that recently tried that were convictions. you know there were people that I left on a jury that could very well have been lying to me. Um, I, I don't know because you don't get to see their social media pages. you don't get anything are they else. lying to you because they, they want to be part of the jury? Most of them lie to you because they want to be off the jury. Really? Okay.
1: <laughs> I, I don't like that, by the way. I, whenever I hear somebody telling me, you know, oh, I said this when I went to the jury. I can't be on it because I'm racist. Or I can't be on it because of the, you know, this and I, I,
0: you well, know. Why don't you know? It, here's here's it's the thing. your civic duty. I agree with you. It's your, it's your civic duty. But if somebody's going to do that, then you don't want. I don't want jury. them anyway. Right, right. Yeah. I would, as as a defense attorney that. or a prosecutor. I don't want anybody that's willing to lie in court and then and then admit it. Mm-hmm. Out of court. Well, yeah, I, I lied to get out of jury duty. You know, I've been called for jury duty. John Hardigan was retired out of Manhattan North Homicide, went to the Bergen County Prosecutor's Office as an investigator. I got called to jury duty and I called John. I said, Hey, John, I'm coming for jury duty. You want to have lunch? He goes, Yeah. You know, there really aren't a lot of a, a hell of a lot of lunch options in Hackensack, New Jersey, <laughs> but I hadn't seen John in a while. We'd done a couple of cases together. And I got called, you know, the morning I co- got called for a jury panel. And, you know, I get, I get in there and said, you know, you know, Mr. Pitt, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm in the Manhattan DA's office, been in the Manhattan DA's office for X number of years. I prosecute murder cases, cold case homicides, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, t- told him all my background, and everything. Do you think you could be fair and impartial? 100%. Absolutely. I could be fair and impartial. Of course, no defense attorney is ever going to take me, no. mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and no defense attorney. I don't think neither a defense attorney nor a prosecutor would take me today because I've done both. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if the emperor has no clothes, I think I'm probably the one that could see that the emperor has no clothes before anybody, any non, you know, law enforcement professional. Um, but, you know, and I told him, and I, you know, I, I told the judge, as a matter of fact, there's an investigator who's a very good friend of mine. And I'm, in about an hour, I'm going to have lunch with him. So you know, the judge just looks at both of the attorneys and goes, "Why don't we just let Mister Bibb go?"
1: <laughs> Are there a lot of lawyers like you that um, you know, flip switch? Yeah, it yeah. happens a
0: lot. Yeah, it happens all the time. And that's um, to make money at some point. Well, I left because of a case. Yeah, let's get I to that. I, let's talk leave that. I didn't about because as much I didn't as you can,
1: it. as much as you can share, you want to share. Um, sure. You you were having this run with the DA's office in the that time of your life, life, right? Then you loved it, right?
0: Loved every minute
1: of it. And then he best it. job, best job a lawyer could ever had. He went head on into a case that changed your mind, your opinion a little bit, right? What was that case?
0: In uh, Thanksgiving night of 1990, at the Palladium nightclub, there was a which bouncer. which is a good club, by the way. Never went there. I went there. Never went there. Um, there was a bouncer um, who was shot and killed. And a friend of mine, Steve Soracco, picked up the case um, and tried, eventually tried two guys, one of whom, by the by, had made admissions to his girlfriend that he had been he had been involved. Of course, admissions that I I thought were f- ultimately false because he was just being a braggart and an idiot. Um, and another guy from Washington Heights was also um, tried, convicted. And sentenced to 25 to life. Were they
1: friends? They didn't. They never. They didn't know each other. But somehow the two of them were supposed to get involved and kill right. this bouncer.
0: Right. So they were tried, convicted, 25 to life. By the way, in front of them, mo- one of the most liberal judges in the system, a guy by the name of Jay Gold. So, in, in that was he tried why those and, two
1: guys, though, how did they even get put together?
0: The guy by the name of David Lemus was identified because. David Lemus's girlfriend had confided in a friend of hers that David had admitted to her to being involved in the homicide. Unfortunately, for Lemus, although admitting to being there and admitting to be a gunman in the homicide, he got most of the facts, underlying facts, wrong. But Lemus is put Lemus is picked up based on that admission. He's put in a lineup and he's identified by four witnesses. Bad case, you would think, right? You have admissions to a person close to him. You have four eyewitness identifications. Yeah, that's good enough for me. Now, uh, the second guy, there was a detective in the 3 poor precinct whose name escapes me and uh, wasn't a big fan back in the day. But he, what, he, what he tells Steve is that a an informant of his... Comes to him and says that this guy, a guy by the name of Olmedo Hidalgo, was involved in the Palladium homicide. So Hidalgo had been arrested a couple of times for nonsense. um, And it was actually being looked at for uh, a number of drug ripoffs. Apartment invasion, drug, home home invasion, but there were drug ripoffs. Right. And they had his picture, and they put his picture, and he gets identified by four witnesses.
1: Same four witnesses that identified the other guy?
0: Two of the same and two different. So you got four IDs. And four this is IDs. based off a
1: photo array or a lineup?
0: Lineup. So you got first initially photo array, lineup for Hidal- lineup for Lemus. There were no photo arrays, if my recollection is correct. They did a photo array with Hidalgo, and he was identified, and then they picked him up. Um, and he was again identified in the lineup. So they go to trial, not a bad case back in the nineties. You know, you got you got multiple witness identifications. How how, is, how could it be that four people are mistaken on two different guys? Especially since one of the guys makes admissions that he was there and involved. Well, ninety five, the US Attorney's Office brings a witness by the name of Joey Palat to the attention of Steve Sirocco. And Steve does a an investigation. Um, and Pelot basically says that he and a guy by the name of Spanky, um, I can't remember his real name right now. Uh, he and he from and the little
1: rascals. <laughs>
0: he must have been really from LeBron, old from the Bronx. <laughs> so he says he and. He's Joey's a member of a gang called CNC, which were out of the 40139 in Brook, very bad area back in yes, the day. Yeah. H- huge, huge drug spot. Huge right? drug spots yeah. all over the place there. And CNC ran the neighborhood basically. It was uh, Jose Calderon and Cousson, whose name was Jose Jose Padilla. Um, they killed people at the drop of a hat. Um, they, you know, you you looked at them wrong. They. They tortured and murdered a guy, a guy and his girlfriend who were there buying drugs because they thought they ripped something off. Uh, they tortured him, took them, they tortured him for a while, then put him in the back of a, tr- a box truck and shot him to death. So these these were bad, bad, really bad guys. And Joey says that uh, he was at the Palladium with Spanky, Richie, and Peachy. And Joey tells a story, of course, leaving himself out. Mm-hmm. He's not involved, so Joey tells the problem here is Joey tells three different stories of, of what he did and whatever. Why is he else telling
1: did. this story? Is he trying to get the off on of something? Yeah, you
0: know, the feds. the feds have them on rack on Rico on um, mm-hmm. drugs, they lifetime life, mm-hmm. you know. And Joey wants to be a cooperator, and Joey's thinking for his life. The problem is that Joey lies repeatedly and he tells three different stories. Well, they end up getting a little bit more and a little bit more, and they end up doing a a motion. The, the defense attorney's do a motion to set aside the verdict. They do a hearing, and Steve thought that at the time, this is probably '96, that the judge Jay Golden was going to set aside the verdict. Well, he didn't. Segway to 2002. What does that mean? Set aside the verdict means vacate the convictions, and get and order. So and, after and they got tried the and
1: they got found guilty, they're doing time, right. and you find out there's new evidence. And you think that the judge is going to, um, when right. he produces new evidence, they're going to let these guys out.
0: Well, grant them a new trial, at least. Okay, yeah, all right. And, so, but he didn't. He didn't. He denied the motion. Um, Why? And, the uh, there was an opinion which he said that he didn't believe Pallott. He didn't believe Joey Pallott. So segue to 2002, when a Guy Ritchie is now being prosecuted by the Southern District of Feds. And he comes forward and he gives a story that, of course, exculpates himself, but impl- implicates Joey, and Joey Spanky, and Peachy. So Steve meets with these two Bronx homicide detectives, Bobby Alorado and John Schwartz, and I meet with them as well. And We say, we're going to open up a new investigation, you know, Banky's getting out of federal prison. They're threatening to go arrest him up in Minnesota, where he is in prison, and bring him back. And we're, so we had to, we actually had to call the chief of the detectives office and say, you know, call this guy off. He can't go to Minnesota and arrest the guy on a Manhattan Manha- Manhattan homicide. He can't. You know, that's what he's threatening to do. He's out of his jurisdiction. So, a new investigation begins. My partner, Steve Sirocco, is retiring in April of 2003. And, of course, I begin the investigation with him. We go down to Fairton Federal Corrections. We interview Richie Feliciano. Um, Richie Feliciano is obviously lying about his own involvement because Joey has put him in the mix back in 95. Um, So, but he says, I wasn't involved. I was just there, and these other guys did it. So... Which sets me on a two-year investigation through, I don't know, I remember how many, 14 federal prisons, 28 states interviewing witnesses. Everybody that was prosecuted under uh, with CNC, it was about 20 And just hundred.
1: because you wanted to make this right, you wanted to make sure that the two guys that are sitting in prison should be there. Right. Either or
0: either should or
1: shouldn't. Yeah, or shouldn't. It was on your conscience. And... It, step by step,
0: and it witness by witness, um, I, pretty, I started to become convinced that these two guys were likely not guilty. Not saying innocent, I'm saying not guilty, that they shouldn't be in jail, that there is enough doubt there about who did this, that these two guys shouldn't be sitting in jail. I eventually came to the conclusion that Richie, Peachy Spanky, and Joey were, the, were, four, were all four involved, and that David Lemus and Alameda Hidalgo were not involved. One of the things that pushed me over the edge was was Spanky's brother. Now, we Spanky's brother was married to a woman from Arizona, uh, no, from Texas. They were in the Army uh, from Texas. He was in Bliss, Fort Bliss, down in South Texas, and met this girl, marries her. Moves her back to the South Bronx. Imagine the shock, this woman, of Texas going from South Texas to the South, South, to uh-huh. the South Bronx. Uh-huh. Oh my God! <laughs> and what happens is it's not we're moving on up, up, up. No, it's the
2: opposite of that. She didn't her husband, the bodega was.
0: <laughs> her husband gets activated for Desert Shield. Now she's there by herself. And now she's there by herself with his family and Spanky, and Spanky tries to rape her, and Wally tries to rape her. He evidently tells her about him being involved in, you know, all these gun shit and everything. And, and she gets away. She flees to South—well, she reports it to the police, but she leaves for South Texas. She goes back to Texas, awaiting her husband's return from, from Desert Storm, which eventually which eventually comes to Desert Storm. But when the Army finds out that she was a, an attempted rape victim and that— they, they actually ship him home to be with her, which I found crazy, crazily odd, but, you know, the Army did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, sends him home to South Texas. And he tells her of Spanky's involvement in the Palladium. Now, we didn't know what she knew about Spanky's involvement in the Palladium, but we, by this time, she is a Border Patrol agent in, in Tucson, we fly to tucson and we speak to her and we're like oh my god this is huge you know spanky's brother knows about his involvement in the palladium so of course we leave south texas and we fly and we immediately try to get try and locate him now he's a legit citizen never been involved in drugs never you know grew up in one of the worst neighborhoods in the bronx never touched drugs, never touched anything. He's the head maintenance man at the Jewish Theological Cemetery in Upper Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a legit citizen. Yeah, yeah. He's he is about as legit, legit as you get if coming out of the South Bronx. So we get a hold of him. Carlos Rodriguez, one of the detectives, gets a hold of him and starts talking to him on the phone, trying to convince him to talk to us. And one day, Carlos calls me up and says... I just got off the phone with Spanky's brother and he's a little bit cocktailed up. He's willing to talk. So we actually set an interview for, I think it was that Friday. Now it turns out that Carlos was getting married that day. So I said, we can postpone the, we can postpone this because you're not getting married at city hall. My buddy, Mark Ember, <laughs> the judge is going to marry you. So we postponed the interview to him. We call him up, to tell him to come in on Monday and he comes in on Monday. And he immediately tells immediately opens up. He says, the night before, um, on Thanksgiving night, we're all planning, you know, we're planning to have Thanksgiving dinner, and Joey, Peachy, Richie, and Spanky show up at his apartment or a relative's one of the relatives' apartments. And they're trying to get him to go with them to the palladium. And he says, No, absolutely not. It's Thanksgiving. I'm not going to the palladium. And they're driving a car that witnesses to the shooting say they see fleeing the scene after the shooting i can't remember what it was it was a blue impala or a blue ford four door sedan and he says that the next morning spanky shows up at his apartment and regales him with a story of him being in in the club being asking to go out and come back in, which was against the rule the, the rule, the security rules. You can't leave and come back. Or if you want to come back, it's another 20 bucks. So Spanky gets pissed, gets in a fight with one of the bouncers, and gets literally gets bounced out of the club. One of the guys, I can't remember which of the four guys comes out. Oh, Richie comes out and sees that Spanky's been he's bounced out of the club. Richie says, um, you know, I leave, I go back in, I get the other two guys, we go down to the, the car, we get our guns, and we go back. And Richie, is not armed, but performs a job in that he's distracting some of the bouncers. Um, Spanky's the eventual shooter. Um, Joey is armed with a nine. Well, he's
1: starting a fight with the bouncers, the other guy's yeah. trying to, hey, fuck you, yeah. is that and the other?
0: Spanky's armed with a nine that ends up jamming. Spanky's got a revolver, and Peachy, I can't. You know, I mean, I re- this is going back a long time. Peachy was involved. I can't remember exactly what he did. And what happens is, the guy who had bounced Spanky out of the out of the the bar is now inside. So there's three or four bouncers outside that had nothing to do with throwing him out. Always happens. But he then pull. You know, they pull their guns. Um, Joey's gun jams, um, and Spanky gets off. Four or five rounds, hits the chief of security in the leg and hits another bouncer in the, twice in the chest. And he goes out. And the three of us stood there looking at, you know, sat there looking at each other like, holy shit. David Lemus, one of the people convicted after trial, was identified as the person who was thrown out of the club and comes back with the revolver and does the shooting. I, you know, I've been doing this a long time by then, twenty years, and I know it's really difficult to have two people doing the same thing during the exact same thing during a crime. Maggie's brother, whose name again escapes me, really pushed me over the edge about Lemus and Hidalgo being involved. Um, There were four people involved. I know who they are. Um, David Lemus and Omedo Hidalgo. Or not, or not them. David Linus may very well have been there, but he was not involved.
2: Could have very easily been walking out of the club and watched the shooting so, go so, down. So, Dan, the, the big issue is that you know this now, and you went to your boss and told him that you wanted these guys to be released and you, from prison, right? And to, But the Manhattan DA's office still wanted to go with it. They didn't want to go against...
0: There's there's things that I I can't discuss okay. because of attorney client privilege and since you know since 2006 when I left the DA's office I've talked about this a lot people want to people want to know about it people want to know what happened um, but there's attorney client privilege there that I have never violated and won't violate um, I know that you know people think I'm crazy but. No, it's just something I won't do. What ended up happening is when I can tell you a couple of things that when I expressed my belief, um, it was told to me that they would have somebody else assigned to me if it came to do a hearing. That never happened until approximately the last week in March of '05. What do you mean the assigned to you? Well, there to- would be another assistant DA would take over the case if they decided, excuse me, if they decided to go to a hearing and defend the convictions, that another assistant DA would do the hearing. Defend the convictions, Right. And that's, that's what you're doing at a hearing. You know, uh, Bob Morgenthau eventually came out with a letter to the press after I went public saying that the hearing was done to determine what the evidence was. Uh, I, have still, I still maintain a ton of respect for Robert Morgenthau. I never did a trial or a hearing to determine what the facts were. I already knew what the facts were. Right. I didn't do, I didn't just throw witnesses on the stand to, for a jury to make a decision. When I prosecuted a guy, it was because I made a determination that I can prove this guy's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt Did I have a sh- my share of acquittals. Yeah. If you didn't have your share of acquittals, you weren't trying tough cases. You weren't making tough calls. You know, if, if all, if, if, if Everything you had. And if all you wanted was the smoking gun, literally the smoking gun and a dozen eyewitnesses, fingerprints and DNA, then you weren't doing your job. You weren't trying the tough cases. And I was trying tough cases. And the hearing, this hearing you know, was, was not done to determine what the evidence was. We knew what the evidence was. I knew what the evidence was. What I, what I will tell you is this, is that in the last meeting before the hearing began, it was between me, Nancy Ryan, who was chief of the trial division, Robert Morgenthau, and Jim Kindler, who was uh, first assistant DA. And I can't tell you what happened during the meeting or what was said during the meeting, but I, you know, I'll let your imagination run wild. Um, but at the end, when I expressed my disbelief that I was being forced to do something that I didn't believe in, I'll never forget what Jim Kinler told me, and this is this is a direct quote. I don't know what you ever whatever made you think you weren't going to do that hearing. And I looked at I looked at my boss, my direct boss, Nancy Ryan. I said she did a year ago when she told me she was going to sign somebody else to do the hearing if it came to it. So I ended up doing the hearing. Um, I was unhappy, to say the least. Uh, I was determined that the right thing was going to happen. And as far as I was concerned, the right thing was the, the, these convictions were going to be set aside. With that in mind, keep in mind as well that neither of the attorneys on the case back in 1990 and ninety five are the attorneys on the case now. They're a new counsel. Um, they're doing a pro bono. Uh, they've never interviewed any of the witnesses, none of them. And I had, of course, entered every every single one of them in person. Oftentimes, more off, more more than once. Now, we probably talked to Spanky's brother in person five or six times before this hearing. So, what I did is, I got all, before the hearing. I got all the witnesses in. I prepped them to testify as effectively as they could. I didn't coach witnesses. I didn't tell them what to say. I told them, "Tell me the truth." And but I prepped them to testify. And one of the one of the most important witnesses to testify at that hearing was Spanky's brother. Maggie's brother did it in a closed courtroom during the crime. And, and the interesting thing is just about, every, I think it was every witness that was called, except for the detective who was assigned to the case back then, back in 1990, they they introduced themselves. The defense attorneys introduced themselves to the witness when they began cross-examination. And when they began their direct examination of the witness, they'd never seen them, never spoken sure. to them, didn't know who they were. Whoa. Um, but but yeah, they have
1: to defend them.
0: Mm. Well, they're putting, keep in mind, they're putting the witnesses on the stand. This is their burden. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was a guy, <laughs> there was a guy, uh, again, whose name whose name escapes me, but he was a member of CNC and had killed six people himself by his own hand on orders from either Couson or, or uh, Calderon. And he testified and I basically asked him on cross-examination, so you killed six people. He said, yeah, <laughs> that was it. <laughs> I mean, I could have torn that guy up, right? but that guy was an important witness as far as I was concerned for doing what was right. And I, 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 I'm I, exaggerating a little bit. Yeah, I crossed him and I asked him some about the homicides, but I could have taken him through those homicides. I could have, I could have had that, witness, that guy on the stand for days on end just talking about his own crimes, but it wouldn't have helped. And what helped was his testimony about what Spanky... And Joey had told them, told him the day after, the Friday after that Thanksgiving. And I mean there were there were other witnesses. They they ended up calling Joey Pilat at the hearing. And I was so angry. We went, you know, I went to talk to Pilat a couple of times in prison, and I was so angry at Pilat for having lied repeatedly, you know, when he was interviewed by the DA's office and then on the witness stand at the first hearing. That I made a determination if they call Pilate that I would absolutely go to town on him. And I, t- I got to tell you, I had I had more fun cross-examining that guy <laughs> than you could shake a stick at. But it was all for show mm-hmm. because I didn't care if the judge believed Pelot or not. You know, because there was so much other evidence that Richie Peachy Spanky and Joey were the perps and not David Lemus and Omedo Hidalgo.
2: So, Dan, did you, after this, it's a tremendous amount of integrity that you showed, did you have to resign, you think? If you hadn't, you would have been dead in that office, or you'd, why did you resign? No,
0: I, well, when I was told I had to do the hearing, I figured there was, I'll tell you, another funny part of this whole thing is, when I was told I had to do the hearing, and Kindler said that to me, I called a buddy of mine who's a civil engineer, knows about law enforcement, what I tell him. Okay. Knows, you know, knows about the criminal justice system when I tell him. So I said, listen, I just had the bad, the worst day at my, at my office in my life. I need to drink. <laughs> so we met at a bar about a mile from our house and we ended up drinking 15 year old Macallan, like uh, the both of us, like a bottle and a half. And we actually had to call our wives to come and get us. And I remember the next morning going out with this monster hangover to go to work and saying, shit, where's my car? My wife says, Don't you remember? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, eh. She goes, It's at the bar, you moron. Mm-hmm. So, but while we're, sitting there, while we're sitting there drinking, you know, my buddy Mike, and I feel, I'll tell you, I'll, Mike, Mike Negri, shout out to you, brother. I'm going to tell you to listen to this. So, when I, you know, we're talking to my buddy, my buddy Mike says to me, He goes, Why don't you just lose? I looked at him and I said, What do you mean? What you, why don't I just lose? Because I figured I had, a, I had two options resign under protest or do nothing, not go to the hearing and get fired. You know, and keep in mind, you know, I got little kids at the time. Right, absolutely. You know, I got a huge mortgage to pay and I got, I, there's no way I can quit. You know, I, I, I can't resign because I need this job. So you threw the game. So I decided to throw it in. He goes, just lose. And I looked at him. I said, you know, I, when I charge somebody with a crime or when I do something in a courtroom, mm-hmm. man, I'm in there to win.
1: Yeah, You know, today, I'm in though. there because,
0: because I believe that what I'm doing is justice. You know, I don't, I don't go in there. I, you know, I, I charge a guy with a homicide because I believe he's guilty. And I threw this hearing because I believe these guys were not just not guilty. They were factually innocent and were not involved in that homicide. And, you know, I, to this day, I always, whenever I see him, which is, which is nowhere near as often as it should be, I always tell him, I always thank him. I said, yo, bro, this was your idea, man. And he's like, I don't even remember that, man. We were so drunk. How can you remember that? (laughs) That's great, though. From the mouths
2: of drunks. I'll tell you something. Yes, yes. I'll tell you something.
0: You know, while you were
1: talking for the whole two and a half hours, every time you were painting a picture, I could always see the scene. And I was mentioning earlier about your TV show that you should have that should be based on you. You know what I'm saying? The She's former prosecutor turns stories, into a defense yeah. attorney. these big cases what let you there you getting locked up for drunken shit and
2: a lot of <laughs> <laughs> discount, a lot this no, gun no,
1: but a lot of it you know it, it has the, f- the feeling of um, turns out a few good men, and it turns out you are one of the few good men that guys, were out there you 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 basically you, you were caught between a rock and a hard place, and your drunk friend helped you out of it. <laughs> then one of the guys sued me. <laughs> For getting him off, yeah, Yeah. fuck that guy, man. The (laughs) guy Hidalgo,
0: they they ended up after the hearing. I said, "I'm done, okay? Mm -hmm. Anyone, no more court appearances for me. Nothing for me. I'm finished. Over. I want nothing to do with this case. You do, you do what you're going to do from Mm -hmm. here." And the the guy they had second seat to hearing assistant, yeah, he signed the last minute, Mm -hmm. somebody basically to watch me. Uh You know, he takes over. And, you know, he's, he knew nothing about the case. So every day he's coming in and talking to me about the case. They're, they're deciding what they're going to do. And, you know, finally they decide that they're going to set aside, they're going to consent to set aside Almedo Hidalgo's conviction. But they're going to fight to, to save David Lemus's conviction. Which makes no sense Which makes all. no sense because most of the evidence that I gathered during the course of almost two-year investigation went to Lemus's involvement, not Hidalgo's. Made no sense to me. It doesn't. And I make even any told them. I, I told them this makes no sense. I said most of the evidence says that you know goes against Lemus. Not is shows that Lemus didn't do it. Not a doggo. but they're like no, no, no. We'll set aside a but yeah. we're going to go to save David Lemus. So of course the judge uh, was a friend, uh, Roger Hayes, still on the bench. I think he's leaving at the end of the year, which is a, which is a loss, by the way. Uh, he he was actually chief of the trial division in 1982 when I started. But uh, the judge, you know, knew. I'm not going to say how, but he knew what my thinking was on the case. And, you know, he, end up, he ends up setting aside Lemus's conviction, and they retried him. Wow. And he was swiftly acquitted. Um, Hidalgo sued, but did not sue me. And the city ends up, ends up, well... What happens now Lemus is Lemus is out. I mean they he had set they set bail when he set set aside the conviction. So he'd been out for a while. Now Lemus is acquitted and Lemus is gonna sue. And I get a call from his attorney and he goes, you know, we're we're suing the DA's office. And I said, Well, okay. I said, listen, I just appreciate it if you don't sue the guy who got your guy out who got your guy out of jail. Yeah, exactly. mm-hmm. So it was a Saturday and I, I run swim meets. All my kids were competitive swimmers, so and I still do today to this day. And I run swim meets for New Jersey Swimming, and that Saturday, I was running a swim meet, and this son of a bitch had federal marshals come up and serve my wife with a complaint, uh, with a civil rights complaint, and I was absolutely livid. So, of course, I called him on Monday, and name call him every name in the book oh wow but uh yeah david lima sued me thanks thanks david
2: yeah for yeah. getting them off <laughs> yeah exactly for, uh, for, you know what they say no good
1: deed goes, goes unpunished, unpunished. Exactly. there you go exactly. that's a great way to end the show i'm sorry that we were running out we ran out of time a while ago but we had a we had to finish listening to this story that's a fantastic story and at Crazy. least you had um like i said you're one of the few good men you stuck your neck out for uh, two people that were wrong, wrongfully convicted. He went the whole way with it, and then he got sued in the end. So it was nice knowing you, by the way. And if you need a place to save, you lose your house or whatever. <laughs> Bill, you know Bill has this That's palatial right. estate. Oh, He's got man, extra it's, rooms. It's, it's His kids are
0: out they're in college. <laughs>
2: it's my vacation spot. Anyway,
0: Dan, I want to thank you. Lemus, I want to thank you so much. Lemus got $1.1 million and Hidalgo got 2.2. Wow, that's not crime based Yeah, but they didn't <laughs> they do the 15 crime. Fifteen years, fifteen years yeah, in jail. Yeah, that's not worth it.
1: Uh, yeah, nowadays yeah. the they get one hundred and twenty million for. <laughs> anyway, thanks Dan for coming yeah, through. it was great. Yeah. It was a pleasure having you here. And uh, we good. like we tell all our guests, um, September twenty first, we're gonna have. Um, a, a comedy show, a podcast, a live podcast, live podcast with a comedy show afterwards in Pleasantville, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're going to be inviting all our past guests on to right, cool. come in and uh, be part of the live po- podcast. Catch up with you. Everybody's going to get a couple of minutes to tell us what they're up to, and we'd love to have you for the, for that.
2: Absolutely, love to. All right, on behalf of um, Bill, any parting words? No, I just again, I'd like to thank Dan Bibb. He's our first non-police guest, and he was it was fascinating. I mean. You know, he's not even drinking. Imagine if he was drinking, how many hours of stories he could tell?
0: Yeah, Not, not quite as many as Mike Sheehan. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we got to get Mike. I've been trying to get Mike
1: in here. I, I, I can't. I don't have a phone I, number from him. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I want to get it. I think he'd be great. You, I love Mike. You
0: guys will be here for a day. You know, it's funny. When you were telling me
1: the drinking stories uh, when you was young,
0: I thought about Mike.
1: I said, this is the kind of trouble Mike gets <laughs> into was, too.
0: He was a guy who taught me a lot. Uh, God he bless was. He's a good man. I want his number. drank a lot, a lot with. I'll give it to you. No, right. All right, thanks. Just, I'm, I'm in touch with him all the time. Well, and,
1: uh, on behalf of Police Off the Cuff, man, uh, thanks for tuning in and we look forward to uh, airing this. These two it, episodes. Let me know. Over and out. Wow. Yeah, man, I've been trying to get in touch with Mike Sheehan. I used to coordinate the homicide. <laughs>
2: I guess not gonna be what's